0: Take that.
1: This is Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark. This is a rebroadcast of an original episode first recorded with my father, Jeff Clark. Welcome to Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark. And in this podcast, we're going to look at the fallacy of moral equivalence. I'm joined, as usual, with my father, Jeff. G'day, Dad.
2: How are ya? G'day, Theo. Yeah. Well, thanks.
1: Moral equivalence, before we get started with the reading from the book, it's a fallacy that occurs a lot in emotionally charged, especially political situations and so on. Uh, and it, as, um, uh, if you look at any kind of issue, especially things like war and stuff like that, people
2: always try and make moral equivalence arguments. Yeah, once you've compared George W. Bush with Adolf Hitler, you've got nowhere to go. So just bear that in mind. Uh, moral equivalence, we describe it as um, the advocate seeks to draw false comparisons between two phenomena which are not morally equivalent. The fallacy of moral equivalence is a strategy often used to denigrate an agency or entity by implying or stating that his policies or practices are as reprehensible as a widely and justifiably despised agency or entity. An example, Adam Polemicist is the third speaker for the
1: negative in the Fulamalulu High School Senior Debating Team. He is attacking the third speaker for the affirmative who has just spoken. The topic of the debate is... Asylum seekers should be detained in a secure facility, while their applications for refugee status are assessed. Adam, the advocate states,
0: So-called refugee facilities are nothing more than concentration camps. Just like concentration camps used by the Nazis, they are designed to break the will of the inmates, while plans are made for their disposal.
2: Comment At times this fallacy may be closely associated with another common fallacy, weasel words. If, for example, Adam had just referred to refugee detention centres as concentration camps and left it at that, he would be using weasel words in an attempt to evoke an emotional response in the audience. However, he has not just used this label, he has gone on to make an explicit claim of moral equivalence. He has asserted that the refugee detention centres are just like Nazi concentration camps. While there may be some superficial points of comparison between a refugee detention centre and a Nazi concentration camp, these would need to be made point by point on their own merits and tested one by one by the sceptical opponent. In the present example, the advocate's sweeping claim of aggregate moral equivalence is a mere rhetorical device which says more about his penchant for moral posturing than his grasp of the issue. It is worth noting that arguments to moral equivalence often
1: employ the fallacy of false analogy. Adams' attempt to equate detention centers with concentration camps is particularly egregious, false analogy because he intended
2: it to be taken as a literal analogy. Debunking opponents should explicitly repudiate instances of unjustified moral equivalence. When egregious claims of moral equivalence are made between, say, the US government and Nazi Germany, or between a Labor Union and Stalinist Russia, seekers after truth should not just reject the claim. They should address false moral equivalence as an issue in itself. It should be pointed out that those who are in the habit of claiming baseless equivalence are not primarily interested in solving problems or addressing issues. They are interested in winning an argument through the use of shallow rhetorical devices, an unfortunate byproduct
1: of the promiscuous use of moral equivalence fallacy is the potential for moral confusion, For example, an individual who keeps a pampered pet cat indoors in a home unit might be castigated by an animal rights activist for confining a cat. The claim might be made that the confinement hat the claim might be made that the confinement is a form of torture. The activist advocate further claims that the cat owner is no better in a moral sense than a feedlot operator. The comparison is clearly inappropriate and unjustified. The cat owner knows this and so the argument is not persuasive. Further, the cat owner would tend to be dismissive of any further points made by the animal rights activist whose credibility would therefore be fatally compromised. Okay, so that was moral equivalence from the book. And a lot of um, the examples, well, we're going to look at three examples uh, specifically of moral equivalence. The first two are actually about animal rights groups um, because they were just the obvious easy ones to find. And then also we're going to look at one in terms of um, the particular styles of, inverted commas, journalism or documentary making. And again, they are... E- what I consider to be clear examples of where something isn't morally equivalent. I can think of some examples that are morally equivalent. Like, you can probably compare, um, Stalin and Pol Pot and Hitler. You know, they're all, they might have different orders of magnitude of the number of people they killed, but the way they operated, all that kind of thing, you could argue is morally equivalent. Uh, and another example I can think of you might want to do where the comparison might be, say, Genghis Khan and someone like Hitler. Now, they might not have killed the same number of people. But they, that's just to, to do with the technology they use, not to do with the, um, the, the way they operated and their goals and whatnot as well. So they're probably some examples of moral equivalence that you can draw, but there's no real point in doing it anyway because you just say, you just talk about the raw facts of what hits where moral equivalence helps a lot, except I suppose in to show the inconsistency of someone's position, I suppose it might be the only way it would be uh, helpful when someone, you know, supports X and you can show that X is morally, can show that X is morally equivalent to Y then you can say, well, hang on, you're being inconsistent in your position.
2: Yeah, I think you can have fun with moral equivalence as long as you So in general light conversation, people might, I mean, I might say, for example, Theo's mother is uh, like Lucretia Borgia, but I would never mean it, and it would be just taken as a light sort of comment. Um, But if it's, uh, our point here is that if it's used in serious argument to make a point and it's not morally equivalent, uh, then it is a fallacy. And that's that's the criterion, really, if you're trying to make a point. And the other thing is you run out of any equivalence. So if you, um, early on in George Bush's uh, presidency, uh, people were given to saying George Bush is just like Adolf Hitler and so on, and mounting it as a serious sort of argument when they'd see something he'd done that they didn't like. Now, as soon as you make a moral equivalence like that, you're actually undermining your own argument because you've got nothing left. Uh, once you've compared someone to Hitler, who else can you compare him to? Because Hitler is the, the, the benchmark figure in our culture, has become the benchmark figure in our culture for a truly evil and, uh, terrible person. Yeah, and sorry, and with the Hitler thing,
1: I mean, that was one of the other ones we looked at, um, one of the, I can't remember which podcast it was, but we looked at Ad Hitler and where you, Uh, you get, I think maybe it was the, um, the one on personal abuse on Ad Holman and, um, and Ad Hitler and being the ultimate example of it. So it just doesn't help at all when you start doing that unless, you know, again, you're talking about Pol Pot or somebody, but you may as well just talk about what they did. Okay. Let's have a look at a couple of examples. Um, these examples are from, uh, the first two examples are from Penn and Teller's show Bullshit. So warning, There's some swearing language here. And it was their particular episode on Peter, the people for ethical treatment of animals. So we had used this one before um, when in the podcast, I think it was the one about uh, sanctimony, perhaps. I can't remember which one it was. This is continuing on, and now we're going to look specifically at moral equivalence and Peter's attempt to equate animals, uh, the way they're treated with slavery.
2: It starts.
0: founder and leader, a shrewd, enigmatic, self-proclaimed press slut named Ingrid Newkirk. Please welcome founder
3: and president of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, PETA, Ingrid Newkirk.
0: Here's Ms. Newkirk speaking at an animal rights conference. Let's just listen.
3: Most people in this room understand that slavery is not over in America or in the Western world or in the world in general. The animals are today's slaves.
0: Slaves? She said animals are today's slaves? Do you really want to equate that worldwide shame to chickens? They've got this truly offensive campaign right now. It's called the Holocaust on Your Plate. David Martosco and the Center for Consumer Freedom in Washington, D.C. have made it their mission to make sure PETA no longer gets away with their bullshit. They juxtapose images of Nazi concentration camps with with images of livestock farms. They're trying to make the Suggestion that the way we treat animals in livestock farms is no different from the way the Nazis treated Jews. The uh, belief that what happens to a chicken is morally identical to what happened to the Jews in the Holocaust. Hey, after all, Jews were cremated and chickens are barbecued. Hey, we at PETA see no difference. Processing animals for food is not a pretty sight, but isn't that an aesthetic point and not a moral one? If you're eating meat, you're part of this. We're part of this. If you can't stand the meat, get out of the kitchen. Just don't blow the kitchen up because you don't like my lunch. How's that, Chicken Teller? Is he eating the chicken? Oh, yeah.
1: So that was from Pan and Teller's uh, show, uh, bullshit. And I, you know, they explicitly explained it quite clearly. They say they're trying to equate it. So use the word equate it, and saying they're morally identical. And so yeah, I mean, they're having. I mean, it's actually offensive the way they're essentially trivialising the Holocaust in a way. Um, and now I, you know, the, one of the things that um, that Pen said there was that uh, isn't it a matter of um, aesthetics? And it's like, well, no, I don't think it's a matter of aesthetics either. I think you should try and you know be you know, treat animals as humanely as possible. And so I would think there's some of the ways we process livestock that's pretty horrible and we should try and get a change overnight. So I don't think, uh, you know, we should extend our sphere of morality to include senti- all sentient beings, and that would include animals. But that doesn't mean you give them the exact same moral status that you equate with, you know, fully alive, um, sentient human beings. And so that's what and so that's where Peter completely loses it. And I understand their aims, but when your aim, when then to meet your aims, you end up basically creating ridicule for yourselves by doing a, a poor moral equivalence, which everyone straight out would go, that's just bullshit, as they say. You end up doing more harm for your cause in the, in the long run
2: anyway. Uh, the other thing that occurs to me with this whole issue is that um, I, I look at two organisations when I'm differentiating between people who are posturers and... Um, engage in false moral equivalence and people who actually get something done that's useful. If you look at PETA and an organization we have here in Australia called RSPCA, the Royal Society of Animals, um, and there are equivalents in all countries over the world, what RSPCA does, inspectors get down to ships that are taking livestock overseas um, and actually get their hands dirty and prosecute people who don't meet certain standards. Um, of, of looking after the animal's welfare and so on. Now, it's not perfect, but the point is that the RSPCA inspectors make a career out of getting down and getting dirty and actually making a difference to what happens on the ground, whereas so many people in PETA are inclined to get on the streets and attract uh, movie cameras and and, uh, and news cameras and so on and make some sort of posturing statement or outrageous moral equivalence. Now... The RSPCA actually gets work done and they actually do change people's habits over time so that, uh, for example, free-range eggs are far, more available now than, are far more available now than ever before and free-range chickens are far more available than ever before. Uh, there's no doubt that if there wasn't uh, uh, a consumer industry in eating chickens and eggs, uh, there'd be far less chickens in the world and say that If chickens have a useful life and a pleasant life and they are used for food at some stage, um, that's not too bad compared to a life in the wild and it does increase increase the net number of animals. So if Peter had their way, um, we'd just let animals be themselves in their natural environments and their numbers would drop off and their numbers would drop off. Who knows what would happen, but... um, I think, uh, as far as, you know, I know sincere vegetarians who have strong, very strong views about not eating animals, but their views are consistent and they're held pretty much privately and they'll explain themselves coherently if they're asked, but they tend not to join large public demonstrations and say, look at me, everybody, look at me, aren't I perfect?
1: Yeah, and I don't want to again I want to emphasize I think there's many issues with the way we treat animals and lives and we should all move we and we are moving towards being more ethical in our general Way. I mean, the future will probably end up, you know, just growing meat in vats, so that'll save that problem. But I think there is a good point that you know we have selectively bred these animals over time, and they just wouldn't exist otherwise. And and then, of course, the whole idea that you can release them into the wild and let animals, you know, the pen and teller point out, it's not some Disney movie with all the bandicoots and the lions living happily together. Nature is brutal and violent. Um, red in tooth and claw. So, it's not as if their lives, uh, in the nature are exactly idyllic either. Now, the other point, uh, the other thing they say in the Penitella thing is they talk about the medical research stuff and they show the hypocrisy of the Peter people, including the, um, the vice president who uses diabetic medicine, um, which was, you know, which was produced through animal research. Uh, and, you know, she justifies
2: it because I need to live because it's a fight to save other animals. Like, mmm. Yeah, just a com- another comment that occurred to me, Theo, while you were talking, is that um, I think Douglas Adams had the had it right as the final solution for these problems of vegetarians. When <laughs> final solution. <laughs> <laughs> when he, um, he uh very far in the distant future, and in the restaurant at the end of the universe, I believe, uh, there were cows who wandered up to diners, and these cows had been bred to offer parts of their bodies or a meal, and we're quite happy to do so, the, so the cows would wander up and say, I've got a very tender rump. I'm sure you'd love a, a rare rump steak today. I think i the of that I in Well, <laughs> I, I think that is the ultimate solution. Okay. if they're bred to enjoy offering themselves to be eaten.
1: Uh, is there anything genetic engineering won't do for us? The other thing, just really quickly, at the beginning of that clip, uh, she says, everyone knows that slavery is still alive in the world today. So that's moral equivalence, but it's also a really good example of a false analogy to anal- analogize, you know, owning pets with, um, being a slave, uh, having slaves and whatnot, you know. And again, the trivialization of, uh, you know, say the Africans and that we've used the slaves throughout history, and you know, there's people still in slavery today is, is just disgraceful. And, immediately laughable and immediately gets them offside. Okay, so let's move on. Now, that was an example of a negative moral equivalence where someone has tried to make a moral equivalence with something negative. But now I've got an example of a supposedly positive moral equivalence where um, one of the main speakers for Peter, a guy that's been arrested and jailed for uh, vandalism and whatnot, blowing stuff up and uh, tries to equate himself with some positive role models...
0: Ah yes, the Animal Liberation Front. The ALF is an anonymous group of activists who go to extreme measures to get their point of view across, like firebombing animal testing labs to destroy research and free animals. I don't even think it's controversial to support the ALF, I don't see what the big controversy is. Uh, During the Second World War, the Jewish anti-resistance movement against Nazis destroyed every tool of oppression. It's the same thing with the ALF. Uh, we are breaking down doors, uh, breaking into buildings, rescuing animals, and uh, smashing uh, property uh, that is used to exploit animals. These tactics are legitimate. They're necessary. They're powerful. They're effective. America, welcome to the new face of animal rights struggle. Gary Yarovsky is PETA's official orator. They send this convicted criminal dipshit into junior highs and high schools to preach the PETA doctrine.
1: I have been arrested 13 times for random acts of kindness and compassion, following in the footsteps of other routine radical lawbreakers like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Mohandas Gandhi, Nelson... Ma- uh, excuse me. <laughs> I'm just laughing about that one. I love it. He's comparing himself to Gandhi and Jesus. It's like... Like No dude, you're not like Gandhi, you're not like Jesus at all. But I mean the first bit of there the guys so they're doing the other comparison now with the Holocaust. They're saying that, that they're they're a resistance movement, just like the resistance movements in the in the World War Two. And then the other guys like basically saying I'm a radical like Jesus, like Gandhi and whatnot. So they're trying to equate their acts as being morally equivalent to the acts of uh, some of these other people throughout time. Now I won't get into the specific details of any of those things, you have to say it
2: is literally laughable. I will give him one point, though, Theo. I think um, when he says that he's like Gandhi, it's not generally known, but he obviously knows that Gandhi slept in the same bed with his granddaughter. Now, I'm not saying anything happened in bed with his granddaughter, but it was a peculiar sort of behaviour. But I'm quite prepared to concede that spokesman from uh, Peter uh, would be the type of person to share the same bed with his granddaughter.
1: I believe Penn and Teller are now—they not necessarily the last word on these things—but they did an expose on Gandhi as well. And they, Gandhi slept with all the young women to test himself, uh, you know, to see whether he would become sexually aroused or not. And then they had a cleanse every morning with um with an enema, <laughs> and he'd give them all an enema himself.
2: <laughs> oh, crazy <So, easy> man! <laughs>
1: Oh, let's not forget Gandhi was a racist as well, but I mean, that was part of the Indian caste system. What category
2: of pedophilia would you put Gandhi in? (laughs) He'd have to have a category all his own, surely. Yes, anyway, moving on. Uh,
1: Anyway, they're pretty clear examples of uh, moral equivalence where it's certainly then those are not morally equivalent. Now, the next example, um, we're going to look at is from a documentary called Manufacturing Descent. Now this is a, ma- a documentary about Michael Moore uh, if you haven't seen it I highly advise you go and watch it because it's really interesting now I'll just give you a bit of the back story so it, so it makes a bit of sense the documentary makers are actually uh, left-wingers, Canadians, and they just wanted to make a, a documentary about Michael Morey's his history and so on because they t- tried to get an interview with him and they were unable to do so. And as they were doing their research, they of course discovered that Michael Moore is less than uh, honest in the way he produces his films, the way he portrays the characters in his films. And that's kind of the irony of this movie. In in Michael Moore's first documentary, Roger and Me, which is about the closing of the Ford plant or the General Motors plant uh, in Michigan, and the whole premise of the film is that he's trying to get an interview with the head of General Motors, um, Roger, I can't remember his surname. You know, that's the whole premise of the film. But it turns out that Michael Moore did interview the guy, uh, but obviously that would ruin the premise of the film. So that's just one example. Look, I won't go into details about Michael Moore, but if you're a Michael Moore fan as I used to be, go certainly get Manufacturing Descent out. There's a few other books and websites that expose uh, Michael Moore's uh, bullshit. And he, the, the premise of this, they just wanted to interview him, but they couldn't get an interview with him the whole way through the film. Anyway, eventually they had to stoop to a Michael Moore-type trick to try and getting to see him. Now, I've got clips of the actual film in here to, to show you what, what they did, and then also at the end of the last section of this clip is just an interview I found with the director and the, who's the main protagonist in the documentary, where she uh, explains what they did, and then basically she kind of implies that what she did is morally equivalent to how Michael Moore operates, and we'll talk about that um, after we've had a listen to the clip.
3: We're on our way to Kent State University to videotape Michael Moore on another stop in his Slacker Uprising tour. Michael Moore and his people were now demanding everyone attending his press conference show credentials. Although Chum Television commissioned our documentary to air on City TV, we had no business cards. With this setback, we decided to step over the line. We made cards to show at the door so we could get in. A trick we learned from Michael Moore.
2: My friends and I decided to pose as a TV crew from Toledo to sneak inside the factory. You are?
3: You are? Debbie Melnick with City TV. City TV? We get into the press conference and wait for Michael to arrive.
0: Has anyone ever approached Michael Moore on a documentary with him?
3: People can do what they want, you know, I mean they want to video him and make a documentary about him, I'm sure that's um, up to them. I finally confront Michael about the bad treatment we're getting from his staff, caused by our problems. Michael, I just want to say I really love your films, and I think what you're doing getting the kids out to vote is a wonderful thing. I'm a bit disappointed because I've been trying to get an interview with you for the past couple of months. I'm the Canadian that's been trying and left messages with Terry and your lawyer, Mr. Hurwitz and stuff, and haven't gotten any response. And and also, you know, we tried to plug into the soundboard at Wayne State, and your bodyguard told my cameraman he had to unplug. And Oh, really? Well, can you help out? I
0: mean, why? I'm sure after uh, the election, but right yeah. now, no offense, and you know I, I love the Canadians, yeah. but uh, every moment of every waking, <laughs> every day I have is spent on trying to convince Americans to get out and vote. And, and um, I'm sorry that I haven't, if that hasn't happened, but, but it's not, you can understand that's not the priority.
3: Right.
0: Do you, do you, do you I do understand you, that? And you, respect it? I do respect that. Okay. So, so then, perhaps sometime after the election, maybe.
3: Is that a you promise? No. I want to do something with some. No, because I'm going to sleep
0: the... for six months. But <laughs> I think I already said that. But you know, when I wake up, I, I'm always, I always love to talk to Canadians.
3: Suddenly, Michael's publicist and security arrive and kick me and my cameraman out. I guess he was more aware of our film than he let on earlier. Anne Moore, Michael's sister, forces our camera to the ground, but it isn't turned off. She starts to interrogate me. have your my camera escort these people out of here we'll keep your id and mail it back to you no you're not going to keeping my id sorry you're not keeping my id to leave. this bullshit so we're being
2: banned
3: we're being banned from a michael moore speech who is for free speech thank you let's go It was really important in every step of the way when we are editing to make sure that we got everything right. And I will double-check sources and say, Oh, God, we can't say that. I have to change this line because it sounds it's not right. It, it makes this person sound a certain way. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was important once I saw Michael's films to sort of make sure I didn't fall down that same pathway. Mm-hmm. Although, as you see in the film, We do fall down that pathway when I make up cards. We do fall down that pathway when I make up cards. You know, we make up these cards because all of a sudden the PR people of Michael's camp and this university, Kent State University, say, oh, in order to get into the press conference, you need business cards from your company. Well, everyone knows when you do documentaries, you don't have business cards of the television station you're doing it for because you're being commissioned. We made up the cards, we got into the meeting, and then we just said, all right, we have to show them that we made these up. Mm -hmm. So, again, you have to keep, I think, the trust between the audience and the filmmaker as well. You know, you have to let them in on what's going on. You shouldn't try to fool the audience ever, I don't think. Mm -hmm.
1: So she there actually says that because they had to make up fake business business cards to get into this press conference and, and get into this show, that that is... She doesn't use a word morally equivalent, but she kind of implies from what she says that that's the same as what Michael Moore does. And I couldn't find it, but I wanted to find... When she they were over here in Australia promoting their documentary, they were interviewed on a morning show or one of the morning shows we have here, and they basically said the same thing. And that and as soon as I heard her, I went, no, 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 you, you have not... You've used false pretenses to get in to get an interview, but you've shown that truthfully and faithfully as, you know, Ford does. He uses the fake journalism, which I have no issues with whatsoever. That's good undercover journalism is to pretend to be someone to get the truth of the matter out. But he doesn't do just do that. He then edits things and takes things out of context. And that's what Michael Moore does, or stacks a deck and, and, and is deliberately a propagandist, and he even says that himself. So that's completely different, so they're not morally equivalent at all.
2: Uh, the other thing I'd like to add Theo about that is uh, you might remember that documentary uh, called uh, Team America
3: Oh Duga Du and, derka,
2: derka, derka. and um, uh, Michael Moore appeared in that documentary at, at one stage where he um, actually entered the headquarters of Team America which was charged with you know protecting the world from terrorists by on.
0: I have intercepted communications that several terrorist groups are being organized for one massive worldwide attack.
2: From what intelligence has gathered, it would be nine eleven times a 100 Nine eleven times a hundred?
1: Jesus, that's...
2: Yes, 91,100. And he actually came in strapped up with suicide um, uh, bomb built, and he blew himself up in that. Um, headquarters of Team America and practically devastated their whole operation Tom, it looks like
0: filmmaker Michael Moore is also jumping on the Team America bandwagon Protesting is not enough, we must take radical action against the fascists in our own country, bring it down bring it down bring it all down Hang on team, someone has broken into the hangar Baxter? Hey Team America I
2: got something for you! What the hell? Prepare to die! <clears throat> Jesus, f***ing! <Timmy, laughs> oh my God! And for me, that was the end for Michael War. I mean, I thought he was a fat, stupid man before that. But the thought that he could actually do that um, and 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 try and kill all of Team America, and also ruin their computer equipment, so they vanish in fighting with the North Koreans and so on. I, I felt that was just. Uh, I mean, he deserved his. Fa- uh, I mean, he deserved his fate, and all those pieces of Michael Moore that were blown all over Mount Rushmore. I think some of them are for sale on eBay, and I'm damned if I'm not going to get one. Uh, I'm really after a piece of Michael Moore so if anyone out there knows who's got a piece of Michael Moore in alcohol uh, or preserved in some other way I'm definitely wanting to get a piece of Michael Moore, just as a reminder of how stupid and what a big fat blubbery stupid man he was I don't think I, I didn't get, to get a piece of Michael Moore but I got a bit of partially digested burger
1: <laughs> and I've been looking for an excuse to put some Team America in this podcast so. I like you You have balls. I like balls. Alright. So, and just to to finish off again properly with the moral equivalence, there is no issue as far as I'm concerned anyway, as long as you are truthful with your audience in how you've made a documentary series. Now, uh, when we do um, false attribution, I'll be using some more Michael Moore because he deliberately attributes these and takes things out of context uh and in his documentary series and if you didn't bother to check any of the background to it, which most people probably don't do, you would just, you know, take it on face value. It's a documentary series. And so that's where he has the issue. He breaks the, the issue. He breaks the trust of his audience. Um and there are some people I know that well I mean I know we're talking about the two quoque fallacy the other the last one that actually have said to me Well the other side lies, so it's okay for us to lie to get our point across like no, no, if you're right, you should just be able to stick to the truth, and that's all you need to do. To do, And that's my main issue with Michael Moore is, again, I used to really like his show The Awful Truth and watch it, and he's, he's funny, you know, he knows how to put a movie together and he knows how to get a point across, but it's a documentary, so stick to the truth, please. So that's why, thank goodness, we've got um, better documentary makers like uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, all right, so that's a pretty short podcast for this uh, fortnight, and we'll be back again next week with more Hunting Humbug 101. So that's it from me, Theo. And me, Jeff. All right, anyway, see you in fortnight.
0: Why is everyone so f***ing stupid? Why aren't more people intelligent, like me?
1: So that was a rebroadcast episode of Hunting Humbug 101. For more information about the show and the book, Humbug the Skeptic's Field Guide to Spotting Fallacies and Deceptive Arguments, head to www.skepticsfieldguide.net.